Let me invite you to open your Bibles, please, to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1. Join our hearts together in prayer. Father, our hearts are stirred considering that our righteousness comes not from our efforts, not from our good intentions, but only through Christ. We rejoice in Him this morning and every morning. Help us. Help us to die to ourselves, to humble our hearts before you and your word, to allow your spirit to do the work that is necessary in our lives. We love you. Thank you for your steadfast love and affection toward us. In Jesus' name, amen. We appreciate bravery, the bravery of a soldier or sailor or marine the bravery of a police officer or a firefighter or even an EMT, all of these people that put themselves on the line. They place themselves in harm's way. We like to see people step up to the plate to make a difference in other people's lives, to selflessly sacrifice to help a helpless person. There are many times in our lives that we can, we can remember someone coming to our, our aid. In fact, I, I can remember just a few years ago, Doug, Tom O'Connell, and I went whitewater rafting. Now, I want you to see, this is, this is great, I want you to see this look. Can you see? I know, it doesn't look like him, but there he is. That's, that's Doug, and he's smiling, like really, 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 really big right there. And I really don't know what this person is doing with that facial expression. It doesn't look good. And, um, well, there's Mr. O'Connell. <laughs> I'm not sure what he's doing either. <laughs> we, we went to the Gauley River in West Virginia. And on this river in West Virginia, once a year, they let all the waters go out of the dam, and it goes rushing down that river. And so it goes from a, a relatively tame river to one of the more challenging whitewater rafting trips in the world. In fact, there are at least five different spots on the Gauley River that are a four out of five on the, the scale of passageways for whitewater rafting, and they don't let you go on number fives. Fives are considered unpassable. So there are five of these spots on this Gauley River that we went through. And before you get to each one of these challenges, they would, they would pull us off to the side of the river and they'd do a safety brief. They'd say, okay, this is what you want to expect. It goes like this, it goes down. Make sure that you don't fall out. Uh, <laughs> they said, if you fall out of, of this in this spot, you won't make it. Stuff like this. Um, before you go on this whitewater rafting trip, they actually make you sign waivers. In other words, I don't recommend it. Let's put it that way. So you have to sign your life away. 
And you get to one of these, these places, and we got to this one particular one, and they said, you don't want to fall out of this one. Don't fall out during this one. If you do fall out during this one, make sure you go feet first and just follow with the rapids. You won't catch the raft. This is their, their thing. Now, I have, I have pretty good balance. I'm pretty good at like staying situated, except at this particular rapid. <laughs> so I had my foot buried in the side. There's a big tube on the side. My foot buried on there. It was lodged in there great. I was ready to go. I had that look on, and we, were, we started going down. And we hit this rapid, and what happened is the whole raft buckled like this and popped up. It didn't, it didn't pop. It popped up. And I happened to be right smack dab in the middle of it with my friend Tom <laughs> to my left, and he and I jettisoned out of the raft. <laughs> so I, I, I go plunging down into the water and whacked my shin on this boulder. If I hit my head on that boulder, I'm not standing here right now. It was bad. I come up out of the water, and the raft was right there. <laughs> so I, I grabbed onto the side of the raft, and Doug reached over and yanked me in. Doug to the rescue. <laughs> that face. Doug to the rescue. Now, to do that, you know, he's supposed to be continuing on. We've got to keep this raft safe. But that's not Doug's mentality. We got Mr. O'Connell out of the water as well. Everyone's back in the, sa- in the, in the raft safely. Our, uh, our paddles are no longer with us. But we're, there we are, Doug to the rescue. You know, there are, there are many times in life when we recognize we need rescue. And these, these opportunities should remind us of the greatest rescue. Because ultimately, God is the greatest rescuer. You can see it on the pages of history. And you can see it on the pages of Scripture. God to the rescue. The Bible's constantly calling us to seek rescue from Him. And the book of Ruth is no different. It clearly displays God's nature as a rescuer. I want for us to see that this morning as we go through and navigate our way through this small book... Obviously, we can't cover every nit and, and granny or every turn and twist in the book. We want to see, in the book of Ruth, this general tone that God is a rescuer or God is a redeemer. And we want to note three different aspects of God's nature as rescuer this morning. Firstly, as we approach this passage, this book, we want to notice that God rescues unbelievers from unlikely locations. And we call that, friends, redemption. God rescues unbelievers from unlikely locations, and we're going to call that redemption. Let's whet our appetites for the book of Ruth as we read the first 14 verses. Ruth chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the 
country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope... If I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you not restrain your excuse me, would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother in law. But Ruth clung to her. I want for us to consider, as we see this letter, this, this book unfold, what God does in the life of this lady, this young lady named Ruth. And I want for us to recognize, and we will recognize, that God rescues her, redeems her, brings her into a covenant relationship with himself, into a saving relationship with himself, And she comes from a place that God said, you're not welcome here. You're not welcome here. Did you hear what I just said? God said, you people are not welcome. This is who Ruth is. Comes from. Let's take a look with this for just a moment. Look at Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy 23. Look with me at verse 3, please, of Deuteronomy 23. 
it says, an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. How long? None. None. Forever. Verse 4. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when they came out, when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. And so here's God's statement. Those people, none of them, ever, among my people, in my presence, I don't want them. Well, that doesn't sound very loving. And it's from that unlikely location that Ruth experiences the mercy, grace, and love of a holy God. It's incredible. And it sets before us this reality that God rescues people from unlikely locations. He is a redeeming God. One writer made this statement, and it is, it is good. I want you to think through this statement by James Hamilton. Yahweh does not owe mercy to Ruth the Moabitess. In fact, no Moabite was to enter the assembly of Yahweh to the tenth generation. As the events of the book of Ruth are guided by Yahweh's sovereign hand, he is showing mercy to Ruth. Listen, mercy she does not deserve. Mercy she does not expect. Mercy on which she has no claim mercy that could have been directed to some other family in response to Naomi's claim that Yahweh has dealt bitterly with her. We see it in Ruth, but this is just the God that we have come to know. This is the God that we have come to worship. This is who he is, showing mercy to people that have no claim on that mercy. People that do not deserve that mercy. People that have no right to expect that mercy. This is the God we have come to know and love and worship. He is a God who redeems the most unlovely people. People like us. It is obvious from the narrative of the book of Ruth that Ruth becomes a believer in Israel's covenant-keeping God. And I want to just survey this just briefly to look at some evidence of God's work of salvation in the person of Ruth. God's work of salvation in Ruth's life. Take a look back at Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. The first element of God's work of salvation in Ruth's life, I would say we can call this loyalty. She has a loyalty that has resulted from God's work. Now, we're not saying that Ruth was a loyal person and so God saved her. We're saying that God saved her and made her a loyal person. Please note that. Please also note, as a side note, just for your own consideration, when God is at work in a person, bringing forth his work of salvation in them, these things 
demonstrate themselves. God does this work. It's a work of God. And so Ruth is an example. Uh, This work of God is exemplified in Ruth's life. Take a look at verse 14 of chapter 1. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, and she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. And so she's become this loyal person. This is what God has done in her life. Not only do we see that, we also see this this concept of worship. Your God, my God. Just look at that statement. Your God, my God. Not your God and I'll, I'll go where your God is. It's your God, my God. Worship has changed. This is a work of God. She has some form of an understanding of the law. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. That is a provision that God made in the law for the poor of the land and foreigners and strangers that they would be able to go and and follow the reapers and, and go to the edges of the field. And somehow Ruth knows this. I don't know how much she knows, but she knows something. So there's an understanding of the law involved in her life. Her reputation that is, is preceding her as she enters into the land of Israel. Take a look at chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Ruth 2.10, speaking with Boaz. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel, listen carefully, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Boaz recognizes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that there's more to this story than Ruth simply clinging to Naomi. There's more to this story. God is doing a work in Ruth, so much so that Ruth didn't come because she heard there was bread, because Ruth has to go along and and grab the scraps. You have come under the shadow of God for refuge. And Boaz somehow knows this. Her reputation is preceding her. God is at work in her life. And just notice the diligence of this young lady, Ruth, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2. Then Boaz said to her servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers, answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and and has continued from the morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Now the ESV translates that, except for a short rest. 
Here's what I want just to, you to notice, and it's just a little side thought for our consideration about the diligence that really should be in the life of a believer that God is at work in. God is bringing about certain character traits. He's doing this. We're not saying, hey, listen, do these things and God will gain, you'll gain favor with God. I'm saying God will work in the life of his people. Diligence is one of those things. Here she is. She didn't just sit at home with Naomi and say, yeah, God will take care of us. Everything's all set. She went out to the field. And she worked. She asked it for permission. And then she worked there. Except for a short break. And so this is all going on. God is at work in Ruth's life. How does this contrast with some other people? Well, when you get to the book of 1 Thessalonians, remember the 2 Thessalonians, excuse me, God is condemning the laziness of the people in Thessalonica. Now, they're believers, he said, listen, if you don't work, you're not going to eat. This is not a good thing. In fact, this is such an issue that if people are not willing to work, to be fed, and they're just like trying to leech on to people and, and take from them all the time, you really should note that person and demonstrate that their, their laziness is not an acceptable place with God. He talks about a church discipline situation at the end of that same chapter, Second. Uh, Thessalonians chapter 3. And so this is not to be the, the character, that laziness. Ruth shows the other side of it, right? Look at what God is doing. It's, it's a demonstration of God's work in her life. God is at work. The fact that God saved a Moabite woman is remarkable. It's remarkable. What does it teach us about God's redemptive purposes? He will rescue anyone. Have you ever felt unrescuable? Have you ever looked at someone and said, no hope for them? Look at the way they act. Listen to the way they talk. Look at what they're wearing. Look at this about them. Did you see what they did in this situation? Unrescuable. Oh, really? Oh, really? God is telling us something different here. He's a redeeming God. He'll rescue anyone from anywhere at any time. So what does that tell us about our attitude toward them? What does it tell us? Bring them the love of God. Bring them the gospel of Christ. Give them the truth of who God is. Don't turn people aside because of the way they look or the way they talk or the way they dress or any of that. We bring people, the gospel of Christ, because God can rescue anyone. You believe it? Are you sold on it? It needs to resonate from the bottom of your spirit. It needs to resonate all the way through that no one is beyond the reach of God's redemptive work. This is who God is. There's a second aspect of God's rescuing nature. God rescues believers who lose perspective. God rescues believers who lose perspective. We can call that restoration. I want us to think about Naomi for a minute. Naomi. The word means, the name means pleasant. Let's look at her story for a moment. There's a famine in the land. They're in Israel. There's a famine in the land. And they leave. Then she loses her husband. 
and she loses her boys. All hope is lost. I've heard that God has visited us. God's kindness has been restored to the people of Israel. I'll go back. So she heads for home. But she heads for home as a different person than she left. Look at verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. Would you wait for them till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Look at verse 21. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Here's her perspective. My husband's dead. My boys are dead. There's obviously some sin problem. It's obviously a sin problem. God is against me. I got nothing. When you're fighting against God, how's that work out? Not good. You don't have a, a leg to stand on in that fight, friend. This is her perspective. God's hand is against me. Because of iniquity, most likely. I want you to just consider for just a moment. She's essentially saying this has happened because of sin. Listen to these verses of Scripture. Judges 2.15 says this, Wherefore they went out, and the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. When the Lord's hand is against you, it's distress. Listen to what David said in Psalm 32. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Your hand is is pressing down on me. You're against me. Psalm 38. For your arrows pierce me deeply and your hand presses me down. Presses me down. Presses against me. There's all this opposition Can you imagine? Think for a moment. Can you imagine if the only way you saw God's hand was as against you or pressing down on you as if it's a bad thing? This is Naomi. She's coming back and all she can think of is God's hand is against me. Is that the way you think of God's hand? I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture, please. Psalm 139. 139th Psalm. I can't fathom living life viewing God this way. In Psalm 139, beginning in verse 9, as David, or the author of David, is 
communicating about God's attributes. The second attribute he covers is about God's omnipresence. From verse 7 to verse 14, uh, verse, verse 12, he is covering this concept of God's omnipresence. That God is everywhere. And listen to what he says in verses 9 and 10. Actually, we'll start in verse 7 for more fun. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, the grave, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Is this against him? Or is this for him? I want to say this to you, friend. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Do you? Is Jesus your Savior? He is for you. Seven days a week. 24 hours a day. 365 days out of the year from now to eternity. Jesus is for you. Are there times that God chastens his children? Yes. Is he for us? Yes. Why does he do it? Because he's so angry about your sin. No. No. He's working in you and me the peaceable fruit of righteousness. God is for his children all the time. Don't misunderstand this. Naomi is in the depths of despair. And she said, God is against me. That's not the only thing she said. Head back to Ruth chapter 1. In verse 19, Ruth 1, 19. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. Just pause for a moment. I want to ask you a question, and we can't answer it. We can't answer the question. I just want us to think about it. When she walked away from her house and headed toward Moab, do you think she felt full? Or do you think she felt empty? It is my opinion that when she left, she didn't walk out feeling full. Now, if you're just talking about, well, I had a husband and I had two kids, I was full as far as my, I had this family. But she didn't leave there feeling full. 
She left there discouraged. Who leaves their home out of necessity and does so happily? Anyone? Was she Naomi, the pleasant one, when she had to walk away from her house and everything she knew and all of her friends and all of her family and everything else except for her nuclear family, this little family? Probably not. Probably not. I'm, I'm thinking she's got a little Israelitis in her. You know what I mean? Remember when they left Egypt? Oh, it was so wonderful back in Egypt. The leeks and the garlic and all. It was so great. Which is why we cried out to God to rescue us. We had it so great in Egypt. Is this a problem with Naomi? I think it is. I think it's a problem. I think that she's, she's got some, some bitterness going on. She actually tells us that. Very bitter. 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 Do not call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Let me ask you a question. Bitterness, good or bad? Anyone? Bad, right? Bad news. Which is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 said, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. Bitterness, bad, right? You got that. The author of Hebrews tells us the same thing. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, he says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully. Listen. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Bad news. Falling short of God's grace is not good. You're not dwelling in God's grace. Grace is the means of salvation, sanctification, and glorification. To fall short of that grace is devastating. Lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So here we are, we have this lady, Naomi. She leaves, she says full, I think she really left empty. She loses her husband and her sons, and she comes back and she says, I'm, I'm empty, I'm bitter, God's against me, bad, bad, bad. Is this, is this the way you want your spiritual life? Anyone? Well, God doesn't leave her there. Hallelujah. There's a rescuer on the scene. He's always on the scene. He doesn't ever quit. Even for a believer who loses their perspective and their hope, he restores them. He can do this. Look at what he does. There's a turning point in this story of Ruth, this this record of Ruth. Take a look at chapter 2, verse 19. Chapter 2 and verse 19. Ruth comes back from the field, tells Naomi, she comes with this this booty, this, this, this amount that she comes back to the field. She had a lot. And, and she tells Naomi about it. And Naomi's, finally, God is starting to, to get through to Naomi that he has a bigger plan and a bigger purpose for her. It doesn't make the loss of husband or sons go away, does it? 
But can a redirection of purpose and understanding give you a new perspective? I think she's starting to get that new perspective right smack dab in the middle of this. Look at verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today? And where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, This man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. And so we have this, this spark, this spark right in the middle of the book of Ruth, in Naomi's heart. Oh, maybe God hasn't forsaken us quite to the extent that I thought. There's something more. There's something different. Look at chapter 4. At the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 13, we're going to see the resolution. The resolution of this concept within Naomi's own life. From, from leaving foolish <laughs> to losing her loved ones, returning empty and bitter to this spark and the resolution of this portion in Ruth chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women came, or excuse me, gave him a name saying, This is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. And he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Well, we'll get to that in a minute. Can you see the, the well of Ruth filling back up? Do you think she feels as empty in chapter 4 and verse 14? 13, 14, as she did chapter 1 and verse 21 or so? Think she feels the same emptiness? I don't think so. I do think that there's still an emptiness there. Like anyone that loses a spouse and children, it doesn't go away. I'm not trying to tell you that, hey, look, everything's all better. No, no, never any scars or any pain that's associated with that. I'm not saying that. But look at what God has done. Like he did with Job like he's probably done for you, where you've had loss, the Lord gives you renewed perspective. Listen, there is a restoration for the believer who loses their perspective. It's called renewing our minds. How often did Paul renew his mind while suffering persecution? Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, 
even though our outward man is currently perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed. How often? Day by day. It's necessary every single day to recognize, hey, listen, I don't have the whole picture. I don't have this all under the control of my hands. I can't do what, what I want to do and how I want to do it. God has got something more planned here. There's a recognition. There's a, a restoration of perspective. A, a renewal of the mind. God is a rescuer, even for the bitter, empty believer who's lost their perspective. He's a rescuer. He redeems people, rescues people that are unbelievers from the most unlikely locations. We call that redemption. He rescues believers who have lost their perspective, and we all have. We call that restoration. There's something else here in this wonderful book about God's rescuing nature. God rescues people from all nations. All nations. We call that preservation. Preservation. I want us to think about this. And obviously, I, I didn't cover. I didn't even cover the the Leveret marriage and the, the Leveret marriage. And I didn't cover the the kinsman redeemer concept. You can look that up. You can read on it. Pastor Bill taught through the Book of Ruth already. You can get the, the CDs. Enjoy yourself. It's all been covered. Okay. I can't cover it this morning. I want us to to recognize who God is from this story, this incredible book of the Bible that's telling us of who God is. God rescues people from all nations. Chapter 4 and verse 13 again. I want you to key in on one phrase. The Lord gave her conception. The Lord gave her. Who's her? Ruth, the forbidden Moabitess. What did God do with Ruth, the forbidden Moabitess. Verse 18. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. And Ram begot Aminadab. And Aminadab begot Nasam, Nashan. Excuse me. And Nashan begot Salam, uh, Salmon. And Salmon begot Boaz. And Boaz begot Obed. And Obed begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David. Isn't it so cool that the book of Ruth ends with a genealogy? Everyone loves a good genealogy. (laughs) But why is it so important? Because God, God is doing something with this small, insignificant family. Peons on the face of the earth from a forbidden Moabite woman who should never be in the assembly of the Lord. And you know what God does? He preserves the line of the Messiah. And you can see Ruth listed in Matthew chapter 1 as one of the people through whom Jesus came. It's incredible. This is what God does. Do you understand who he is? He's a rescuer. Listen, there are countless churches meeting today. And how many are telling how great God is? And how many are telling people about God? And they leave snake bitten 
and they leave in bondage and they leave with nothing but hell for their future. The Bible portrays a God who rescues us from the depths of our depravity and our sin and the depths of a destiny that is headed for eternal hell. God is a rescuer of men and women. Do you know him? Do you know this God? Let's, let's just follow this a little teeny bit more, if you would. Genesis chapter 12. You know what I know about God, and I know you know it too. God does what he says he's going to do. God does what he says he's going to do. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named, he, uh, named Abram. He wasn't a Jew. You want to know why? Because there weren't none. God calls a man named Abram and he makes a promise to him, to his family, and to the entire world. Look at what he says. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse him who curses you. Listen carefully. And in you or through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, listen to this develop a little bit. In Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, it will be on the screen behind me. Here's what God says. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. This is what God is doing. He's taking his blessing to Abraham and he is multiplying it out from that small group that multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and he's making it a worldwide blessing. Look at Isaiah 49.6 on the screen. Indeed, he said, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. And to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation. Where? To the ends of the earth. This is what God is doing. And the people that knew God recognized it when Jesus came. Listen to what it says in Luke 2.32. A light. Jesus is a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And he's the glory of your people, Israel. This is just way too cool. It's just way too good that we can look at any book in the Bible and see God's glorious grace and to see Him rescuing people like us who don't deserve it, who have no claim on it other than God's goodness other than God's mercy, 
other than God reaching into the, the nastiness of this world and saying, I want to bring you into a relationship with myself. I want you as one of my sons. This is what God does. This is God's work. And we look, and we look at how God is doing something amazing. But Naomi and Ruth, they were hurting. We can look back and say, look at how great this is. Look at what God is doing. And there's Naomi. And there's Ruth. And they're in pain. In every way conceivable. We look at Naomi's pain. What about Ruth? She lost her husband. Her pain is great. And yet God, in his providence, in his sovereignty, turns that horror into the blessing of the whole world of which you and I stand as beneficiaries. Because through Ruth the Moabitess, we have received grace and life. Now we could spend some time, and I had planned to, to look at how Boaz's way is a, is a nice typeset to point us to our redeeming God. We don't have time for it. I'll just tell you that Boaz and his dealings with Ruth protected her. Much like our Savior, Jesus Christ, protects us. Boaz demonstrated kindness to Ruth, much as he demonstrates kindness to us. And Boaz provided for Ruth abundantly, much as Jesus provides abundantly for us. Boaz was a vessel God used to be a physical restorer to Ruth and to give a renewed perspective. However, we must recognize that there's a much greater rescuer. And we read about it just ever so briefly in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 12. You remember we, we actually read it together in our responsive reading. You, you actually listened actually to Jason read it for us in verse 12 where it says, Under whose wings you have come for refuge. Well, Boaz is a type of that because you'll remember when Ruth proposes this kinsman-redeemer relationship. You remember she goes to his foot of his bed and she placed herself under the, the apron of his bed. He, she, was, she was asking if he would put her, his wing over her and protect her. There's, there's some imagery there. But she didn't come there just for Boaz's refuge. She came for the refuge that's real, that lasts eternally. I want you to turn to one more passage as we conclude with just some thoughts from the book of Psalms. Psalm 91, please. As we read this, 
I want you, if you would, to discern whether you could say these things. Whether these things are true of you. Whether when we see the I and the my, the personal pronouns, when you see these things, is it talking about you? Listen to what the psalmist writes in verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in Him I will trust. Surely He shall deliver you from the sneer of the fowler or trapper and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Is he yours? Have you come to him for rescue? Have you come under the shadow of his wing for rescue? Is he your refuge and your fortress? See, God is at work rescuing those far and near. He's rescuing the unlikely and restoring those who have lost hope. Our God is a rescuing God. And today, he can be your God. Is your heart burning within you about a Christ who can redeem and save? Has God illumined your mind to understand who he is? I say to you, friend, respond to him in faith. Trust him. He is everything and more than any of us could ever describe. Let's pray together. Father, you're so good.